0: Keeping it real and raw with Patrick Tremont. Hello, everybody. I am so excited to have my very special guest today. It is Ryan Katzenbach, and he holds many titles to his credit, sir. But one title that I personally like is Friend. Thank you, Ryan, for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very good, Patrick. How are you
0: doing? I'm doing absolutely fabulous on this wonderful day. And you know that today, I don't know if this means anything to you, but it's national pet day. Did you know that? Do you have any pets?
1: I did not. I did not know that, but I should probably know that considering that I'm surrounded by them right now. So
0: (laughs) yes, well, me too. I mean, I love our babies, you know what I'm saying? So, but Mm -hmm. uh, they're family, they are family, but You know, you have all these great titles. You know, film writer, director, and producer, as I said, and uh, it's such an amazing, amazing thing. But did you know that um, we've been friends for like a decade now? Did you know that
1: over we met over the um, we met like so many of the people that I have come to know. I think it was the the project from hell. The (laughs) project
0: from hell. But you know what? I mean, I'm telling you right now, what a what a Wonderful, wonderful film. I mean, when I sat there and watched it, I was just freaking out because all these facts. That's what I. That's what I love about your work. You so get out there. You pull out all the facts and you stop at nothing to get to the core of what everything means and what is you know going on. So when we met on that Amityville, you know, movie, and um, Mm -hmm. and it's so funny because I mean, it's funny that we became friends over Murder and Mayhem. You know, (laughs) and uh, it's a
1: great way to become friends. It's how I've met a lot of my friends.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, but, um, but, but the Amityville story has always been out there for years, but what you did is you uncovered a lot of truth that a lot of people didn't know. So if you'd like, I would love to hear about that.
1: The Amityville, you know, and, and, um, you know, it's kind of one of those projects where it's, um. It's kind of bittersweet for me. It was a it was a project from a filmmaking standpoint that I set out to do um, because we had been through multiple development deals with some of the studios and I was just I had pretty much got fed up with Hollywood. I, I just couldn't get anything made. We would spend, you know, a year, two years, three years in a development deal with one of the studios only for the deal to fall through and for it to go into turnaround. You know, which turnaround is where basically they've optioned it, they've had the material, um, you know, under their option for for a year, two years, three years, whatever. Right. They're developing it, they're writing a script, they're getting ready, they, they're saying that they're going to make it, and then, you know, you have a management change, and all of a sudden... Uh, you have a whole new management team that comes in and says, well, the previous management team developed that script and that project, and we want nothing to do with what the previous management team did. So they just, you know, they drop the option, and the project falls back into my lap. And I had been through that multiple times, and I was tired of it. And I said, you know, this that really, Amityville should be a TV, should be a... Uh, documentary a docudrama over that of just a dramatic tv show right so in 2006 we decided that that was going to be the route that we were going to take and that's what we did so we shot the whole thing you know completely independent completely out of pocket you know and spent basically you know five years making the thing and you know when you got in and you started digging you know, it was amazing the things that that were under the surface that nobody else had ever explored or had ever looked at before, you know, and it was all right there. I mean, it was in various, you know, court filings. It was in various documents. You know, it, it was the, the truth was there. You know, Mm -hmm. and there were so many people, there were so many people in making that, that that no one had ever talked to before, you know, family friends of the DeFeos, you know, uh, Lynn and Roger Nonowitz, you know, Lynn had been the DeFeo housekeeper since the, I think, late 60s, early 70s, up and through the time that the murders happened in 1974. And they had been approached multiple times for interviews, but they had refused to participate because they were afraid that someone would take their story and try to edit it around to support the whole haunting and the whole horror story, right. which was something that they were dead set against. It was something that they felt had tarnished the the memory of their friends, you know, that they had been so close to through the years. And, you know, I was able to talk to Roger and I was able to convince Roger that no, we are, we are doing a project that is trying to get to the bottom of what happened. and, you know, he agreed for the first time in all those years, and I think the only time that that he's ever interviewed, and he told us a, an amazing story, which really supported the idea that there was a second gun involved. You know, and and the police had actually told him that back in 1974. So that was just one example, and and we, you know, then we found uh, friend, other friends of the DeFeos, and everybody sort of stitched together the picture of this family that we had never heard this specific story before, right. you know. And to me, as a documentary producer, you know, the, the, the best stuff that you can is the as they say, as I often hear the network people say, you know, quote, tell me something new about something I thought I knew,
2: mm-hmm.
1: unquote. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the business I'm in and kind of the, the types of stories that interest me.
0: Well, i tell you what, you made national news in Maxim Magazine, I believe, when you found that second gun in the Amityville River, correct?
1: Yes, yes, in the canal, Yeah, Yeah, in the
0: canal, and um, what an amazing story to find it, and I think that the police were actually reluctant to give it to you, right? When they, like, when there was a story behind them, Yeah, yeah,
1: they confiscated it the day that, you know, we felt, excuse me, we felt, Like, you know, the thing about Ronnie DeFeo is Ronnie DeFeo is a habitual, or I should say was, you know, obviously he's dead now, you know, is a, is a, he's a liar, you know, and he's told over a dozen different versions about what happened that night at his family's house when the, when the murder went down. And, you know, he's completely, he is the epitome of an unreliable witness. However the thing that you discover with Ronnie is you discover that he tells the truth sometimes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in every story that he tells, there's truth. It's just not the whole truth, you know, and you have to sort of pick the, the, the pieces out and you have to sort of say, well, that is supported by evidence and this is not. Okay. So one of the things that he had been adamant about, you know, for, for decades, you know, and he had consistently said that one, there were other people involved, and he had said that there was a second murder weapon. You know that his mother had been shot, and you know he told the story, as we recount in the series, he tells a story about his friend Bobby Kelski. Mm -hmm. And he says that Bobby Kelsky, you know, was the one who had the 38 revolver on his person and that at one point his mother, they thought that everybody was dead and his mother had moaned and they realized she was still alive. And Bobby, without thinking, he pulls this revolver and he puts Louise out of her misery, you know, or so Mm -hmm. goes his tale. Right. And the truth is, there was no Bobby Kelsky. And the truth is, there was nobody. There was nobody else there that night. It was Ronnie DeFeo by himself. He he killed his whole family. End of discussion. Right. Okay. And and the only person who had a 38 handgun on him was Ronnie DeFeo. Okay. Yeah. He used he used the rifle okay, he executed everybody with the rifle, dad was shot twice, mom was shot once, shot his sister in the face, shot his brothers in the back, marched upstairs, and and did his 18-year-old sister don it, you know, yeah. seven rounds, okay, and I think that when he was cleaning up and he was picking up the spent casings and he was picking up, you know, all of the evidence and rounding it up and throwing it in a pillowcase, right. that he still had that 38 handgun on him,
2: okay? Mm-hmm.
1: And I mean it wouldn't make sense that he was walking around carrying the rifle because the rifle would have been empty after firing seven rounds. Okay? Right. And he has the handgun on him and he he realizes his mother stirs, she moans, she makes some, some noise, and he reacts by shooting her the second time with this gun that he's got on him. So now he's got two different calibers of gun. Okay? Yeah. Two different types of bullets. And, you know, he disposes of one at the uh, Richmond Street Dock, the rifle. He throws the other one in off of coals. He drives to Brooklyn. He disposes of all the evidence, which includes the holster for a handgun. Okay, in the in the storm sewer. So when you take the evidence, okay, here's a here's a handgun holster. Okay, then you pair it with the ballistics report of Alfred Delapena, who says that uh, you know there's seven bullets that match, and there's one that's heavier and wider than the rest. When you begin to put all that together, you realize that,
0: you know what, he is telling... He's admitted, he's already in prison, and he's going to die there, or he did die there. So why didn't he just uh, just kind of come with the whole story, like, how did not anybody wake up, and why were they all laying face down? You would think well, that... They,
1: but, 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 but Patrick, they did wake up, okay? The, you know, this, this whole myth that DeFeo walked through the house... And he kills his family. I mean, this was the whole reason. This was the very reason why I, as a filmmaker, did the story and made the documentary. Because I wanted to know what happened. I said the same thing. I said, how could one man control six people? How could he walk through this house? And how could he murder this entire family? And nobody got out of bed. Nobody put up a fight. Nothing. How did that happen? Okay. And the answer is, it didn't it didn't okay you know the amityville horror as a movie you know when you watch those movies they make this this amityville horror house look like this magnificently large house
2: mm-hmm. okay
1: it's not Okay, it's not that big. It's like a 4,000-square-foot house because you have a basement, first, second, and third floor. The footprint of the house itself is not that large. So when people say, well, how could he have done this? The answer is really simple. He, he stood at his parents' bedroom door. He executes his parents. It's 12 feet across the hall. Okay, to his sister's room. How long, Patrick, does it take you to, to traverse 12 feet? Right.
0: I see your point. Okay.
1: I mean, 10 seconds. Right. I can walk 12 feet in, in five seconds, okay? You throw open the door of your sister, pow, in the face, okay? The, the boys' bedroom, you know, everybody in that house was in a dead sleep, okay? So he had the advantage of ambushing them because... No, because they never saw it coming. You know, these, they, they heard the gunshots. But the autopsy reveals, in the case of Allison DeFeo, his 13-year-old sister, Okay, Allison's, Allison's eyeball, blood in the hallway... Okay. You have a blood smear on the master bedroom door. Okay. I mean, there's, there, there's a million, and I'm probably glazing over because honestly, I haven't looked at this case in, in, you know, since we did the film, that, you know, you had, uh, six people on two different floors right. that were dead and no one, and no one woke up,
0: yeah, let's you do know,
1: that. and, um,
0: Okay, and, now, what you know, what I'm asking is like but if any if any of them didn't hear it and he can only go from twelve feet, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then how come nobody like on the second or third floor would you know move and they're all laying face down? That's what I just don't understand. you know what I mean? Well,
1: I mean, well, I mean, okay, so so again, you have the element you have the element of time, okay he he opens his parents' door. He shoots his father twice. He shoots his mother once. That would be enough right there in that house with the sound of that Marlin 336. Okay, that, that gun would wake the dead in an, in an enclosed space. Exactly. Okay? So that would have woke everybody. That, I'm sure, I'm positive that that probably woke everybody in the house up. Okay? Now, Patrick, what happens when something wakes you up in the middle of the night, you know, with a start? Okay? You're sort of disorientated. Okay you have right. no idea what's going on the last thing that you the last thing you're expecting when you're a 13 year old kid or you're uh what 9 and 11, which I, think, which I believe was Mark and John, and Don is up on the third floor. I mean, this is the last thing that you think is going to wake you up. You have no expectation of a gun going off of a high-powered rifle being discharged in your home exactly. in the middle of the night. Right. Okay. So, so this undoubtedly woke Allison up with a start. By the time that she woke up, he had probably already crossed the hall, 12 feet to her room. Okay. He opened the door, her bed where, where she was sleeping. When he opened the door, he would have been looking directly at her. Okay. She looks up from, from the pillow. She's awake. He shoots her in the face. Okay. You know, it happened literally just as fast as I just said that. Yeah. Okay. And remember, he is hopped up on adrenaline at this point. Okay. He is doing this. He has been fantasizing about doing this, you know, and now he is engaged in the act. And he, and when he said, if you remember his haunting words at one point, he said, once I started, I just couldn't stop. Right. Okay. There it is. I, I think that's, I think that's a true statement. I think he's actually being honest when he says that once I started, i couldn't stop okay yeah. and And, you know, he, he, he shoots Allison. He literally at that point throws open the door next to her bedroom door, which is, which is the boys. He walks into their room. Okay. He may have ordered them because of the way that they're laying. We know that we know that Mark had a football injury from a practice session a a couple months earlier, Mark slept on his back. He couldn't roll over without assistance. Okay. So even, even if, even if, you know, Ronnie Butch. Okay, even if he rolled the boys over, ordered ordered Mark to roll over, you know, and helped him. Ordered John to roll over and shot them both. You're talking about. I mean, what are you talking? Twenty seconds. Right. I mean, th- these are small bedrooms. Okay, okay. So Don on the third floor. While this is going on, you've now got you've now got six shots that have been that have been you know. Uh, executed. Mm-hmm. So now Don is up. She's out of bed. Okay. He says that he had an altercation with her. He claimed, you know, that he had this altercation because she had killed the kids. He had left the house. Okay. Right. He came back. He discovers that she has killed the kids, which wasn't their original plan. And him and her get into this big altercation and he knocks her down on the bed and he shoots her in the back of the neck. Okay. Well, Again, I think there's truth to that. Okay, Mm -hmm. I believe that there's truth. I do not believe for a second there is no evidence to support that Don DeFeo had anything to do with this crime. Okay, she had nothing to do with shooting the kid. She was simply, you know, awoken at three oh five in the morning or whatever time it was okay heard these gunshots heard a whole round of gunshots on the floor before her she was probably the only one of the DeFeos that was literally like conscious enough to suddenly have an understanding that something bad is going down okay i think she got out of bed I think she probably met him somewhere in the third floor hallway, and I think that she put up a fight for her life. I do believe that there was an altercation between the two of them, but I yeah. think it was her simply fighting for her life. Okay, He overpowered her. He knocked her on the bed. He shot her in the, in the back of the neck, Okay, and then in the process of cleaning up the crime scene, he covered her up. You know, wow. And as I said, the, the powder particles that were all over her nightgown when we examined the nightgown, you could see these little black burns all over the back of the nightgown. Well, if the blanket, if she had been asleep and the blanket had been over her, Okay, the blanket would have absorbed those those burning powder particles, not her nightgown. So that tells me right there that leads me to believe that she was up and she was awake. So this family, this this whole crime did not go down the way that he said it did, the way that that the Lutzes and the Warrens later tried to claim that it was some kind of phantomania that kept the victims, you know, in their bed in place. There, There's nothing, absolutely nothing supernatural about this. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, anyone that believes that the boogeyman lives in that house is a fucking idiot.
0: <laughs> I totally agree. But, you know, you have to admit, though, the movies are sort of fascinating in a way, I guess, the way that they can put it all together. But I guess that's Hollywood, right?
1: Well, the, well, the movies so, are, the movies are, if you... Fantasy. <laughs> If you step back from, you know, the story and you just wanna watch the Amityville horror as a good as a good scary movie, hey, it's a great scary movie. You know what? I grew up I grew up watching those movies, okay? Right. You know, I I grew up watching, you know, the Friday the 13th, you know, good old Jason and Freddy Krueger. And, and, you know, everybody, we all love a good horror film. I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching a a horror film just for the the pure entertainment of it. Okay, But, you know, Hollywood took this whole thing and just exploited the murder of, of six people, you know, three of them being innocent children, four if you count Don, right? okay? And, I mean, it's like the, the, the DeFeo family was a complete afterthought in this whole story, you yeah, know? And I felt a... like that was the crime, that was the tragedy. I mean, these people made money off of the death of this family, you right. know? And, and, you know, when I set out to make this thing, I was just curious. I wanted to know, I wanted to know how he did this you know, nice. and I felt when I got, this is one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons, Patrick, why I just cringe when people bring up Amityville and they want to talk about the story, because I realized that I will never outlive the story. You know, if, if I, I don't care if 20 years down the road, I make something and I win the Academy Award for it, probably when I'm being interviewed for the Academy Award win, mm-hmm. they're going to bring up, oh, and let's talk about Amityville back in the day. And I'm just going to, throw up, but, <laughs> right. but, but you know, there's the the reason that I have this reaction to it is because there's just, it, it's not that interesting at the end of the day. I mean, you know, he did it. He killed his whole family mm-hmm. and his motive was not unlike that of Eric and Lyle Menendez. It was not unlike, you know, so many people who have, who have killed, you know, for money. That's what this was all about. It was just for money. You yeah. know, he got he got busted for that robbery, okay, of mm-hmm. the dealership's deposit that had happened, you know, 12 or 13 days before the murders went down. OK, and he knew his grandfather knew that he was going to be arrested for for that robbery. OK, and his father knew it. And that, and that in fact, the grandfather had called the house in Amityville and talked to his father that day about what was going on with that investigation of the robbery. Right. Butch DeFeo knew he knew he was about to be kicked out of the family. He knew that the gravy train had just come to an end for him okay, that he had bit the hand that fed him, his grandfather, okay, Mm -hmm. and he saw this as, I mean, as stupid and desperate as it was, he saw this as being his way out, he was going to kill his family, he was going to kill his parents, and he was going to get the inheritance, you know, and that, and that in his own, you know, myopic way of thinking, he, he never thought he was ever going to get caught, Right. You know, and, and he did. And, you know, he died in prison. He died exactly where he should have been. Now That's you, where he
0: belonged. Well, now you did go and visit him in prison and interview him, right? Yes, yes. I did. So what I was did. that? What was it like? Like, you know, I'm kind of curious, like you have this frail looking guy. Cause I've, of course I saw your film and it's absolutely excellent. And so when you watch it and then you have him, what, like, what was it like to sit across from such an infamous murderer? You know, like how, what, what was it like? What did it feel like?
1: Well, it was, you know, the going into, and I've, I've been in to, you know, prisons and jails and stuff like that several times to, to interview different people, you know, and whatnot. And, you know, this was, um, it, this was definitely, this was an experience that's, that, Definitely sticks out because, you know, Greenhaven, which was where he was at when I interviewed him, he was later moved, I think, back to Sullivan, I do believe, and I think that's where he died. But um, going into Greenhaven, you know, it, it is kind of an intimidating experience because you know you're looking at walls I remember I was talking to the to the warden you know while we were standing around we were waiting on DeFeo to come down to the to the visitation room and I asked the warden I said how tall are those walls and he says oh they're 45 feet and I said has anybody ever has anybody ever gone over them and he's like nope no one's ever gone over and I said has anybody ever gone through And he looked at me and he says, Nope, those walls are six foot thick stone concrete and rebar. And I'm like, yeah, well, I guess you're not going to, I guess you're not going to get through that. I said, has anyone ever gone under the wall? And he says, no, because the 45 feet that you see above the ground, that 45 feet goes below the ground all the way to the bedrock, you know? And, And so it's, when they say max security, they, they are not exaggerating. Right. And, um, and so, you know, we went in and, of course, the whole process was, you know, they had to inventory every piece of equipment, every cable, every battery, everything that we came in with because it had to match, that, that inventory had to match going out. Right. You know, so, so we went through that whole process and the security check and everything. We got to the visitation room and the, the guards themselves and the warden and, and everybody that was, that was there, that was, uh, that was a very enjoyable experience because they were all very, very friendly and very accommodating and very helpful. And so then, you know, DeFeo came down to the, to the visiting room and, you know, here is, you know, the, personification of evil here is satan and as you said he's this little frail old man yeah you know and and it's kind of hard to sort of reconcile the infamy of this guy and what he did against this frail old man that's you know sitting in front of me you know and i don't know that day if he was I don't know what he was on, painkiller-wise or medication-wise, but, you know, as the, as we talked, and the longer that he talked, you know, um, he had a gigantic gob of drool and spit amassing on one side of his mouth, which, you know, you'll see uh, in the interview. And it's, and it's just, I mean, it was like, overall, the experience was interesting because the way that people make con- eye contact with you when they're telling the truth, you know, I think it was my... My um, forensic psychologist, Dr. Hickey, who explained when he looked at the tapes, he was like, this is when he's telling the truth and and this is when he's not. And honestly, for the most part, we felt like the interview when he was talking about his grandfather and the dealership and his father and the mob connections and the mob business that was being done, he was being absolutely honest you know right. because of the way he made eye contact and the way he looked at me when he began to to you know go into a mode of deception that was when we got to the night of the murders that was when he began to give me this account of what had happened you know right. which at this point was a completely different account than what we had depicted in the film you know right. so this is like version number 13 you know <clears throat> and so and so it was like you know Overall, my overall feelings about him is that Ronnie DeFeo, sitting across from him talking to him, you know, this is the kind of this is the kind of dude that you could sit down at a bar with and you could have a beer with him and you could laugh it up and he has stories for days and he is an interesting guy, you know, telling the, the story about his mobbed up family, you know, and right. he's an all around great guy. And I don't think Probably had they released him on parole, I don't think he would have probably done any harm to anybody. I think that he, you know, he took his family out because he saw them as his great obstacle at that moment. Would he kill again? Maybe, but probably not, is my guess. You know, but at the same time, he was where he needed to be.
0: Well, I tell you what, now he's deceased now, right? So
1: Yes, he died last, um, I think it was last March. Yeah.
0: Well, it had to be just so surreal, just sitting across from someone so infamous that has caused so much controversy and discussion, you know? But in mm-hmm. your film man, i tell you what, you really got all the facts and you did an excellent, excellent job. So if anybody has not seen that, you must go see it. But...
1: You know, I, I, I say to, I'll say this to you. You know, it's funny because the, the interview with DeFeo was not, was not like the most memorable moment in making that series. Yeah. You know, the one moment that really got, that really hit hard with me was when we were in the, the property division of the Suffolk Police Department and one of the items they brought out a lot of evidence for us to film and of course the one item they brought out was the Marlin rifle and we had gloves on and they had told us that you know if you need to move anything for the sake of filming you feel free to move it. You can touch it, you know, as long as you're wearing the gloves, you know? And at one point while we were shooting, I became kind of frustrated with the placement of the rifle and I was trying to get light, more light on the rifle so we could see it better, you know? And I, and I couldn't, I just couldn't seem to get the light adjusted and my PA just couldn't seem to get it adjusted. And finally I just like, I'm like, you know, fuck it. Give me the, the rifle and I'm just going to move it into place where I want it. And I picked the rifle up, and as soon as I picked the rifle up, it Ugh. that was a real moment yeah. that hit me because I'm holding this rifle in my hands that killed, you know, mm-hmm. these six people. And that was I – re- I remember I kind of made eye contact with the, with the officer, and he kind of had this, like, kind of a little grin on his face because I think he, he registered <laughs> – and there go my dogs.
0: No, that's okay. Fine. <laughs> yeah,
1: I have hey, no idea what they're. I have no idea what they're barking. No, that's at, fine because it's anyways, National Pet Day. So yeah, they're just making their. They're just making their presence known. Well, they're so. making
0: their debut. But so you're yeah. holding the rifle, and so they, the. Why do you think the officer had like this kind of smirk? You think like, "Yep, that's it. That's the murder weapon." You know? Yeah,
1: it, I think he. I think his smirk was because he sort of. Um, what I want to say, I think he sort of saw that it registered with me how grotesque this item was to, yeah. to hold, you right. know, and, uh, and I was putting it down very quickly. And then later on, I had that officer actually, you know, he, he picked it up and he kind of like turned it around and showed us all the different angles and all that, because I just honestly just did not want to touch it again.
0: Right. Well, I don't blame you. Well, um, well, I was kind of curious too now, because you did another film called uh, Titanic Sinking the Myths now
1: yeah a huge huge departure from the uh, murder from and mayhem the, of Amityville
0: exactly and so but when I saw this one which was well made and excellent so but I'm kind of curious you go from the murder and mayhem of Amityville but then you take on Titanic which has been done so many times so whenever I watched it of course I was just like engrossed in it because I wanted to know like what else could you possibly uncover that hadn't already been told right so what right. what kind of got you into the the Titanic story.
1: Well, I was I was a huge as a kid. I was just geeked out by by the Titanic story. I first you know heard about the Titanic story in 1985. I was 10 years old, and that was when Robert Ballard and the the French American expedition found the wreck on September 1st of 1985. And I remember just being captivated by those by those images from the bottom of the ocean, you know, of right. this, you know, massive ship that, that's 13,000 feet beneath the sea, which is just, you know, unfathomable. And, uh, you know, I just started reading all the books and I saw all the movies, you know, A Night to Remember and, and Titanic and a couple of others, you know. And, and so there was a, a guy named John Whitman and John Whitman had – Um, he had started a Titanic museum in Sydney, Ohio, because he was obsessed with the Titanic. And I, as a 10, 12 year old kid at that point, you know, went to see his collection because there was a big article on him in the paper. And my parents took me over to meet this guy and he owned an art school. And so I began going, eventually I began going to art school, you know, and was sort of like trading tuition for, um, working in the museum on the weekends as a tour guide. Okay. So here's this like 14 year old nerdy, you know, kid in high school or in junior high, you know, working in the, in the museum. And one of the people who came to the museum to do a book study, I actually met a Titanic survivor because of the museum and I've got her autograph, you know, and and pictures with her. And um, and so that was Louise Pope, and I met her in the um, in like May of 1989, and then in September of '89 we had this author named Diana Bristow, D. E. Bristow, and she came to the museum to do a book signing for her self-published book, Titanic Rip: Can Dead Men Tell Tales? And she really had a different understanding and a different appreciation of the Titanic disaster. She felt like all of the people who had written the books and written the movies didn't understand how a crew responded in an emergency. And she had been herself, she was a pilot. Okay. She had been an Eastern airlines, uh, flight attendant for 30 plus years until she retired in 1986, you know, and she had gotten, she had gotten involved in the Titanic disaster because she was in her, in her retirement, she had decided that she was going to take up writing, and she began writing a fictional book about the Titanic disaster and a fictional story set against the backdrop of the disaster. And when she began doing like, the historical research to get her fiction novel historically accurate, yeah. she began to say, wait a minute, th- these, this crew on Titanic sounds almost incompetent you know, and why would they have reacted that way? Why would they have done this? Why would they have done that? So she began at that point, because she was retired Eastern Airlines, she was able to fly all over the country basically for free, and in fact, all over the world. And she went to England, and she went to Germany, and she went to all these places, you know, and she found all of this new stuff. And she was also probably one of the few that up to that point in nineteen you know the nineteen eighties took the time to sit down and read the entire fifteen hundred page transcripts of the British Board of Trade and the United States Senate inquiry into the disaster. Yeah. And she began to like dig out information that that other people had had glanced over. Like for instance, one of the revelations that we make in the film was was about the white rockets, okay? Yeah. And you know, it said the right. Titanic fired white rockets, okay? And she, you know, she's reading the transcript, and in the transcript it talks about, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher this. I'm just gonna paraphrase this very quickly. You know, the officers on the Californian saw the white rockets on the horizon. And they called the captain and they said, captain, there's a ship. There's a ship to the south of us firing white rockets. And this was very intriguing to Captain Lord. He said, what do you mean white rockets? And and the officer says, they're simply white. And Lord says, you're sure they're not throwing any colors? No, they're just white rockets. Well, when, when he said throwing any color, it caught Diana's attention because Diana said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. As a former as a former student of the Dayton Art Institute, where she went to school back in the 40s, as an artist, she knew that white was not defined as a color. White is the absence of color. Okay? Right. And so then she got a book called The Rules of the Road. And The Rules of the Road, from this 1910, 1911, 1912 edition that she acquired, okay, that's the book that, the, that sailors use to study for their certificates. So this is how an officer studies to get his officer certificate.
2: Right. And
1: in that book, it says that a distress rocket, okay, a regulation distress rocket is a rocket that throws stars of red, green, or blue. Yeah. So that's how she figured out that Titanic was not firing a regulation distress rocket, you know, and there were so many, I mean, and there were just so many, as you saw in the film, you know, the discussion of the rivalry between, you know, England and Germany at that time, as we are approaching, you know, World War I, which is only a few years away. Diana approached the disaster from a, economic point of view. She approached the disaster from a political point of view. She took everything that was going on in the world and and how the world worked at that time and applied it to the disaster. And that's how we ended up getting a very different book and a very different story. Right. So So I had the, I had become the publisher of all of Diana's books in the nineties, you know, as, and we had made we had created a friendship based upon that meeting at the museum. And that was in, of course, Ohio where I grew up. And then I moved to California and her and I maintained the, the friendship and we maintained the friendship all the way up until when she died in 2011, she was about 82 or 83 And, you know, I had been sitting on on this book, and I had always, even when when Diana was alive in 1992, 1993, Diana and I were writing a feature script based on her book because we believed that this would make a great, you know, that telling the untold story would make a great movie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, lo and behold, a few years later, James Cameron did just that, you know. And so Jim Cameron, I always felt like Jim Cameron you know, beat us to the punch. You know, um, with his with his film, but you but know, but his
0: was more of like a love story, though, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and ours would have been too, because our our Jack and Rose were two you know, as, as you saw in our film, you know, we tell the story about the, the Dutch traffic inspector and his, and his secretary, and the secretary right. falls in love with one of the stewardesses. And so that was really, that was honestly a true life, you know, Jack and Rose story that, according to Bill Mueller, the survivor that nobody knew was a survivor, you know, that's of course played by Ed Asner, you know, um, you know that was a real story. And that, that was your, that was your Jack and Rose. But, um, but anyway, I had, we had just, we had, we had come off the success of Amity, of Amityville. And that had been, we had made a two hour adaptation of the Amityville series for Reels channel and Reels, my ratings had been like, really good. and They were very impressed and very pleased with the show. And so they were kind of asking me the question, what, what else do you have? What, you know, what do you want to do next? And in like a passing conversation, I mentioned this, this Titanic book that I had and mm-hmm. how I published this thing. And the next thing I know, we're, we're, you know, discussing how to make this book into a, into a film. And of course, you know, that gave me that led to the opportunity then to to do another film with Ed Asner and of course the great and wonderful Francis Fisher. And, you know, um so that was that was how that whole thing came to be and kind of I felt like it, it took the Titanic story to a new level. It told some things yeah. that I don't think too many people were were aware of you know we were joined then by another guy named park stevenson that i had not met at that point and Parks has since become a very good friend of mine and he's a, you know he's been to the titanic wreck you know multiple times and he's an wow. engineer and explorer and he brought a really great perspective in our documentary on some of the the structural damage aspects of the of the you know, collision with the iceberg and the coal fire that we present. So, you know, it it was a, it was a Titanic was by far my favorite film at this point. It was, it was a wonderful experience. It was, you know, it it was so much fun creating the sets and going on location and doing all of the the things that we had to do to make that film.
0: Now you didn't go, you didn't go down in the water. Did you To to the actual site? (laughs) No. No, no, no. Okay.
1: No, no. But I can tell you that that is on my bucket list. If I ever got an opportunity to go down to the wreck, that would be like
0: I know, but don't you think that's creepy? Don't you think it's kind of creepy? You know. <laughs>
1: oh, <laughs> it's so, oh hell no.
0: It's so dark and going down there cuz whenever you watch, you know, uh, you know, stuff on it, it just kind of it just kind of feels dark and creepy, you know, like you see, you know, like the shoes that are still down there. Like how would like those leather shoes still remain? You know what I mean? Well, the leather shoes, the leather
1: shoes actually remain because of the process that they use, the tannic acid that they use in the the creation of the leather. Okay. The, the, the bacteria down there, the bacteria that's down there is, and I'm, by the way, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert. I am simply repeating the things that I read and, and what I've been told by those who are in the know, you know, the, the tannic acid, for whatever reason, the bacteria will not, the bacteria that's present, literally the bacteria that is eating the ship and eating everything that's down there, mm-hmm. okay, for whatever reason, it just does not like the tannic acid. It does not like the leather. No. So it will not touch the shoes. So probably 500 years from now, those shoes are still probably going to be sitting there
0: yeah got in that crazy it's kind of wild when you mm-hmm. think about it you know okay well yes, yes. well, now i'm kind of jumping ship here for a second <laughs> and um no, no pun, pun intended. intended so but uh, you mentioned the great legendary ed asner now he's the uh narrator of all your films correct
1: uh he, on some did. Of them? he was a narrator on amityville and he played um Bill Mueller, the Titanic survivor in our, in our Titanic docudrama. Yes. And Ed and I, um, you know, did, I did numerous readings with Ed and, uh, you know, Ed was around, I, you know, we were friends for about 18
0: years. Yeah. Oh, what a, I mean, he's a legend, a Hollywood legend. And I, I grew up on all of his TV shows and stuff. So, I mean, what was it like, what, what kind of advice did he ever give you like in this business? What's some of the best advice I, you ever oh, gave me? I
1: you know probably I tons. couldn't even begin I couldn't even begin to recount all of it. I mean, right. you know, he was just he was just such a champion of people, you yeah. know. And if he liked you, you know, I mean, I would come to him all the time for for advice on things or, you know, uh, how should we proceed on this? How should we do this? You know? And, and he was just such a gracious, he was just a wonderful, he was just such a wonderful friend and wonderful mentor and wonderful person. And he was just, and he was so goddamn funny. I mean, that was the thing, you know, I mean, and one of the, one of the greatest things that I always enjoyed was just making him laugh. Right. You know, because if you could make him laugh, you know, I felt like I had always accomplished something, yeah. you know, and, and I remember, I distinctly remember one day that I had, I went over to the house. I was, you know, running some errands and doing some stuff and I stopped by the house and we were sitting at the dining room table and he was just getting ready to have lunch and we're sitting there and we're talking and, and I said to him, this was about, this was like 2000 seven, two thousand eight, right at the time when Pixar was getting ready to make up. And I said to him, I said, So what are you working on right now? And he says, I'm just I just closed the deal. I'm getting ready to make a Pixar film and I and I looked at him and I said <laughs> That's awesome. I said, so what, what are you going to be playing? Are you going to be playing like a, a rusty old rake or a, a curmudgeonly ficus tree? Or, you know, what are you, what are you going to be doing? And he, and he has his sandwich in his hand, and he stops almost at his mouth, and he looks at me. And he says, for your information, I'm going to be playing a grumpy old man. And I looked at him, and I said, well, that's going to be a fucking reach for you, isn't it? Oh. And then he, just, and he, he looked at me, and he says fuck you cats and back and goes about eating his sandwich, you know? And, and I always Um, loved, I always loved any time that, that I would say something, I would be a smart ass and I would get the fuck you cats and back response. I mean, (laughs) you know, he was just, he was just, he was just a character. The guy was just
0: a character. Oh my God. Well, it sounds like he was, I mean, you know, and of course I enjoyed all of his, you know, movies and shows and everything. So, but, um, Now, I was going to ask you, if you don't mind me asking, on your other film, The Zodiac Killer Trap, Mm -hmm. why did you choose to do that particular type of film about the Zodiac Killer?
1: Well, it was a very, well, it's murder, you know, I mean, anything that's murder is interesting, you know. Um, and it's very interesting because the case is not solved, and um, you know we are we are in the delivery process on this film right now to the network. So we are um, going through quality control, and we're going through the mastering process and all that. And yeah. so we're gonna we're gonna air that here sometime in the next few months, I hope. And um, and I just I think that the Zodiac, I mean, Zodiac is one of those very, very interesting cases because it's never been solved. You know, we still, we still 50 years later, we don't know who the Zodiac killer was, you know? And, you know, every few years there's some revelation or some book or someone comes forward and says, Oh, you know, uh, I know who the Zodiac was and, and here's the evidence. And here's why I know that that just happened last fall, uh, with a group that solves cold cases, but you know, it's still officially open. It's still not solved. Um, it, it, so that's what makes it interesting. It's it's like Jack the Ripper. I mean, I don't think that they're ever going to solve Jack the Ripper, and I honestly I don't think that they're ever going to solve Zodiac. I I actually think that the guy was was smart enough. Don't ask me how. Okay, that he managed to not leave any real DNA behind. You know, right. I mean, you know, they caught the, 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 I forget the guy's name, the gold, uh, the, the, the golden state killer or whatever the hell he was, you know, that they caught him because of the DNA match, you know, yeah. off of one of the, off of one of the websites, you know, and, and I feel like if they were going, cause you know, they submitted Zodiac's DNA, okay, like the stamp or off the envelope or whatever it was, I wasn't really that interested in it. Um, they submitted this. Okay. And they were unable to get a hit. They were unable to get any type of confirmation, you know, that as to any type of identity or anything like that. Right. So maybe in the future, maybe something will eventuate. Maybe they'll, they'll catch him. But I, I think they would have probably done it by now if they were going to. Yeah. And second of all, our film is not, again, it goes back to tell me something new about something that I thought I knew. Um, our film, Our TV show that's getting ready to come out on Zodiac okay, is not just about the Zodiac case. I mean, obviously, that's all in there as the the background and and the the foundation of the story. But our our real story that we're telling is we're telling the story of a man who made a movie to catch the Zodiac killer. Yeah. OK, a man named Tom Hansen, who in 1971, he made an independent film. It was the first movie ever made on the Zodiac. He made an independent film, OK, believing that if he made the film and he debuted the film and premiered it in San Francisco, if he four walled it in a theater that he rented, that the Zodiac, given his ego and given the way that he had taunted the newspapers mm-hmm. and the police, He believed that the Zodiac would have to show up, that he would want to see himself, you know, on, on screen. And so he literally made this, this independent film for like 12 or $14,000, you know, and they took it to San Francisco and they premiered it. And a man showed up that matched the Zodiac description.
0: Oh, wow. That's crazy.
1: And I'm not going to tell you anymore because I'm not going to spoil it. Yes. (laughs) but no, now I'm our- just
0: like, oh my god. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, this is this is the angle of our Zodiac show. It's a whole new story that's never been told, a whole new facet of yeah. of investigation and it's really quite I mean it's really quite interesting. I I will just say that I know that Tom Hansen who is still with us, he's in, in his 80s. You know, I I I think that Tom to this day really believes that he caught the Zodiac killer that night, yeah. you know, in the theater. And so again, without spoiling it, you know, I'll, I'll keep you apprised of when, uh, when this thing is going to debut.
0: Yeah. Is it going to uh, debut on reels?
1: Yes. 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 It's going to debut on reels.
0: So I know you have a lot of other projects going on. Can you talk about any of those or are they still like under wraps? Like in, in, <coughs> or
1: there's, there's, pretty much everything is pretty much out there. I mean, you can, you can learn pretty much what you want to know about what I'm working on by just looking at the IMDB page, you know, um, there's just a lot, I have a lot going on right now. Um, I've been doing, a, I've been doing a lot of, um, editing work lately. It seems like I've been tapped to do a lot of editing work. Um, yeah. I have the uh, Ronnie Chason, you know, uh, series. We've got, we've got the entire pilot of that thing is almost completely shot, and then we've got like five more episodes that that are in various states of being put together. And we were really, really on track to be done with that like a couple years ago, and then of course COVID basically shut the whole world down for two years and interrupted everything. Right. So we've just been trying to get some stuff back on track and get some stuff like, you know, Zodiac has experienced a very significant delay because of the whole COVID, you know, issue. Mm -hmm. And so we're just kind of now in 2022 sort of starting to get things back on track and get things going again, get things moving. You know, the, the Chasen series I'm very excited about because I feel like, you know, that's going to shed some light on, on Ronnie Chasen's, you know, homicide, which is now 10 years old. And um, then I've got a couple of um, – well, I've got, I'm working on literally like three things right now that are going to – two of which are going to end up in festival circuit. One of them already is, and that film is a little short film, uh, about 17 minutes long, that I produced and edited uh, along with Liza Asner with Ed's daughter. And it's the last movie that Ed was in before he passed away. Oh, Wow. Yeah. So wow. it's just now hitting the festival circuits. I think it's going to play in Dallas here this week. And I think that um, I forget where else it's at, but I know we are finalists and I, you know, in several different uh, f- you know film festivals around the country. Yeah. And then I'm working on a documentary with Liza and then I'm working on another documentary uh, project, which we're just now getting started on. So I've got, I've got a multitude of things going, but you know how it is. It just, Takes a while to get to get them to kind of get everything and get
0: going up. and everything. Well, that sounds that sounds wonderful and exciting for y'all. You know, with all the festival stuff going on and and everything. So, you think you might be up for an Emmy or something, or?
1: well we won't Who be knows? you know emmy emmy is emmy is television um, Right. i mean there's a or, i suppose there's a possibility we could we could be up for an academy award because there is you know with a with a short film there is a category, a category for that in the oscars Comedy. and the the process of going like on the festivals is if you i do believe that if you're in the festival and you win you win one Academy Award qualifying festival, okay? Right. Then you are then eligible to to enter your film for an Academy Award.
0: Wow. Okay, so that's how that works. I was always kind of curious about that because I love all those award shows. So I I never knew the actual process of how that stuff works. You know?
1: It's i I'm. To be honest with you, you know, I am not a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Sciences, and I don't really fully understand how all of it works either, because I just don't, I just don't work in that space of feature films. You right. know, I work in the space of television and documentary and, and you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. it's not really my, it's not really my space. I mean, if we were to get nominated, that would be, that would be pretty cool. That'd be but, awesome. you know, I... Yeah, it would be pretty cool, I, but I, I'm not obviously, you know, holding my breath. I don't really live for awards. I right. live to create. Yeah. You know, and, and to me, creating and, and going through the process and interviewing people and meeting new people and going places and, and doing that's that's the reward in and of itself.
0: Yeah. Well, that is the, that's the, uh, that's a true artist right there. You know, when they when you say that, that is actually how it is. You know, when somebody's there to create, and they you know they don't really care about the awards as much because they'd rather touch people with their their creativity and their and their product, right? So right, yeah.
1: I'm not even sure. I'm 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 not even sure anymore that I really even care about the film business all that much I mean you know it's it's kind of like you know with everything that you deal with and with all the work that you put in and you know a lot of times the fighting that goes on in this in this crazy business and and you know the, the the competition is fierce you know I mean it's like you're always trying to get your product in front of the development people and get it sold and you know you you've got to You know, you just got to keep producing, and you got to you got to have a whole bag full of ideas. You know, for every ten ideas that you have, you might be able to sell one, maybe. You know, and it's just a very it's it's a very tiring process. And I mean, sometimes I think that you know I could find enjoyment and satisfaction in a lot of other things. Yeah. Other than this.
0: Well, you know, well, don't stop creating because we're all loving it. You know, we love your work, so well. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's absolutely fabulous, and and so I'm just I'm ready for all these new films. You know, I'm I'm ready, I'm ready
1: for these new films too because I'm ready to get them off my desk. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> I, well, yeah, you know, I can imagine. So
1: yeah, and and you know, and we've got and you know, it's fun to sort of develop new stuff. But I mean, I I don't ever see myself. I don't ever see myself retiring from creativity. You know, yeah. I just see myself maybe doing new things, you know, taking new avenues. I mean, you know, as one of my friends, you know, we're we're developing right now, we're working on developing a web series for uh YouTube. Wow. And I'm actually pretty excited about that because it's going to be like a little mini documentary series that we're going to do on cold cases in Southern California and not just not just cold cases but sometimes we're going to dive into some famous cases and talk about famous stuff too if there's an interesting angle to discuss right. and I'm developing this with a friend of mine with Lauren you know, and she's a total, total crime geek you know, and, and we're on the same wavelength with one another in terms of you know, our taste and subject matter and that kind of stuff and in a lot of ways I think it's going to be more fun than actually producing TV because you don't have anybody telling you what to do You know, you present the story the way you want to present the story. You tell the story the way that you want to tell the story, you know, and, and you just, if you want to make it, as you know, when, when you're podcasting, you know, it doesn't matter how long the podcast is or how long the episode is. This week's episode may be 20 minutes. Next week's episode may be an hour and 20 minutes. You know, it's, it's all about telling the story and, and being creative and, and, you know, and, you know, just, tell the story and I think if, if it's interesting and it's captivating you will have an audience people will listen and it doesn't matter how long or short it is I mean you know Amityville sort of proved that to me I mean we developed a series that ended up coming out basically in four installments plus a four-hour interview with DeFeo that's that's two two-hour installments and you know people are they're they're eating it up You know, the the idea of long form, long form journalism really works. And I, and I find that so interesting today because, you know, you and I are fairly close in age, you know, we're contemporaries for all practical purposes. And, you know, we grew up in a world where, you know, you had a sitcom that was 22 Minutes you know, that aired in a 30 minute block, you know, and and you have movies that are two hours and everything, you know, everything is sort of gone off the rails. If you look at things in the last, like say five years. Okay. Now all of a sudden, Okay. You know, you have a series. I I thought the series, I thought Ryan Murphy's series, um, American Crime Story, the OJ Simpson thing. I was very intrigued with that series. And I thought that series was very well done because it demonstrated that you could take, you could take one crime and you could stretch it out over 10 episodes mm-hmm. and that people would watch it and that it would get high ratings and that people were enthralled with that. And then he, and then he turned around and he did the same thing with Versace and, you know, and that's kind of what I did in the documentary series back in 2011 with Amityville. You that's know, right. I said, you know, this thing is, this thing is almost eight hours long. It's like 12 if you count the DeFeo interview. Okay. And will it work? And I, I didn't know whether it would or not. I didn't know if we released it in three installments, if I would have an audience that would follow it, but they did. And so it sort of demonstrates to me that, that the American people, that audiences in general, you know, when they get hooked on something, it doesn't matter how long it is. And that's kind of liberating. And that's kind of, that kind of frees you as an artist to sort of do what you want to do. You know, nope. and I and I sort of told like I told Lauren, I said, you know, whatever cases we pick, whatever we decide to do in our little in our little webcast, you know, um, as long as we find it interesting, I think that the audience will find it interesting.
0: Absolutely. Now, what webcast are you talking about? Like, is it your YouTube channel?
1: Yeah, it's going to be on my YouTube channel. Okay. And we have we have literally just kind of started filming the first episode and I think we're going to, our plan is to get like three or four episodes uh, in the can before we actually release the first one. And um, I don't know whether we're going to do it. I don't know whether we're going to do it on a weekly basis. I don't know if we're going to do it on a monthly basis. We may just do it whenever the Holy Spirit motivates us to, to do it. <laughs> and right. you know, that's, again, that's the beauty of doing what what we're doing is you can, yeah. you can broadcast as Frequently or infrequently as you so desire
0: and where can someone find that? What where, where can they find your channel? What's it called?
1: Uh, Ryan Katzenbach presents Okay on YouTube and if they go there right now, they can watch the entire uh, Basically almost the entire I haven't released the last installments of the Amityville a documentary yet but they can go there and they can watch some of my work for free and uh check it out and uh leave comments and like it or dislike it or whatever they whatever the, they choose to as do I said, whatever the holy <laughs> spirit moves them to do
0: right well I was I was going to ask you a question going back to the OJ thing since um, you know Ryan Murphy had already done it have you ever thought about doing this type of film about OJ and Nicole do it your way and then kind of dig up like kind of the way you've done the other stuff in the past or maybe the John Bennet story has is that
1: you the, know I am just not for whatever reason I've just never been moved by those stories um, in the case of OJ okay there's no mystery OJ did it we yeah. all know he did it. You'd right. have to be an idiot to, to, to think that O.J. didn't do it. You right. know? I mean, Nicole, Nicole Brown Simpson had her throat slit so savagely okay, that he almost decapitated her. Okay? You, that right there, in terms of criminal psychology, that right there tells you. Okay? Ask any criminal psychologist. They'll tell you. You know, that's rage. That's hate. Okay. And, and who would have that kind of rage? I mean, do you think someone's going to, someone's going to break into her courtyard and try to rob her and they're going to be that savage? Hell no. You know, right. they, they, the, the person who did this had a relationship with her, had genuine rage, okay, in their heart for whatever their situation was, you know, and there's no way that, that, and, and, you know, my feeling, I'll tell you the story I would tell. And the story that I wanted to tell, and the story I spent a year pitching and couldn't get traction on it, and that is the story of Ron Goldman, because I always, I have always felt like Ron Goldman was sort of like the the forgotten victim, the forgotten the guy, victim. It was it was all about OJ and it was all about Nicole and oh, and and this guy named Ron Goldman who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. You know, Ron and his. I mean, you know, I think you know, you know who Fred Goldman is. And I think, you know, Kim Goldman, you know, they they've obviously had a lot of exposure on TV and they've, and they've been victims rights advocates and they've done some amazing work. And, you know, through the process of, of pitching a project about Ron, I got to know Fred and I got to know Kim, you know, and, and they're wonderful people. And I think that that is a story that needs to be told. And we spent a year trying to get a network to pick that up. And everybody just basically said, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's been basically overexposed. There was just too much on OJ, you know, when we were pitching this and no one wanted to do it, you know? So maybe one day, I don't know, you know, I, I may circle back to it. I may get an opportunity, which I would love.
0: Well, what about the John Bonet Ramsey case? You don't think that's interesting? Like, you know, that's never been really solved and everybody's got all these, you know, conspiracy theories. So you don't think you can under, you know, unravel some of, you know, great information. I, on I that?
1: just, I just don't, I just don't find it interesting. I don't, I don't know why I can't really tell you, I guess probably because I, I think that it was the parents that were behind it, and yeah. so I don't really see a who done it. Okay, when I when I see a who done it, like like for instance in the case of Ronnie Chasen, you know, here's this publicist on her way home, you know, in Beverly Hills on Sunset Boulevard, and someone comes up and shoots her four times. Okay, yeah. and. And then, you know, two weeks later, they identify this, this person of interest. They go to interview him, and he shoots himself in the head, okay? Right. You know, case closed. Oh, it's the gun's a match. The forensics are a match. You know, his gun matches the weapon that was found in Ronnie Chase. But then I began to find all these discrepancies and all these issues, and, and that began to sort of, like, capture my imagination. It's like, okay, wait a minute this is not cut and dry. This is not, there is no definitive proof that this guy who committed suicide was the guy who killed Ronnie Chasen. Right. You know, and I began to dig. And of course I sued the Beverly Hills police department to get the homicide file, you know, and I got the autopsy released. And the more I dug, the more it became, it legitimately became a great whodunit, you know? And you know, it's like people ask me all the time. They're like, you know, well, what do you think? Who killed her? And of course, number one, I'm not going to say because I've got theories that I'm waiting to get out. But, you know, it's like we may never know exactly what happened that night when when Ronnie Chasen was murdered. But I know exactly what didn't happen that night. And what didn't happen that night is what the Beverly Hills Police Department claims.
0: Right. Wow. Well, that, that, that's going to be a good story right there. That's gonna be I think really it's going to be,
1: I think it's, I think it's an amazing, I think it's an amazing story. Yeah. It, it dives into, you know, Hollywood and fame and fortune and this, this seedy underbelly of, of this city that we live in, you know, yeah. and it's, it's light and it's dark and it's, it's all of these, it's just every element, you know? And I, and again, that's, it, it, it's the things like that that grab my attention you know, and I'll look at something, you know, I like the whole, um, what was the the uh, girl's name that, that came up dead or came up missing? Gabby, um, what's her face? You yes, know, that, again, yes. that was not an interesting, everybody I knew was watching it. They were like, what do you think about that? And I'm like, I think her boyfriend killed her. I don't think, I mean, there's no mystery to this. Okay. Right. It's like, it's like, duh. I mean, w- <laughs> Come on!
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we know what happened. So yeah.
1: You know, I mean, it's like in any in any homicide case, it's like you know, oh, you know, the the husband's brakes on his car failed, you know, and he went off of a cliff, you know, and then they find out that like you know a month later the wife is having an affair and she recently upped his insurance, you know, mm-hmm. to from one million to five million. Well, that doesn't take rocket science to figure out who was behind it. You know, right. I mean.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> so, so it's funny because now I'm kind of learning how you pick your stories to, to write and direct, you know?
1: Well, for instance, for instance, with Ronnie Chasen, you know, I followed Ronnie, the Ronnie Chasen, you know, murder from the day that it happened, okay? Yeah. And, you know, so we used to have, I used to have an apartment in L.A. that was like south of Beverly Hills. And we used to go to a lot of like screenings and stuff like that in Hollywood. And so you would be coming home late and it would be, it's like, okay, what's the quickest way to cut from Hollywood back to Beverly Hills? And it was literally like almost the route that it was the route that Ronnie was taking. Okay. And I would take, I took that route. Okay. Um, maybe not directly Whittier, you know, all the time. It may have been, you know, Rodeo or, or Foothill or, you know, depending upon where I was heading late at night and, the reason you cut through Beverly Hills at 1230 at night was because there was nobody on the road. There was nobody. I mean, it was a ghost town. Yeah. Okay. And so of course the, the morning that Ronnie is killed I'm watching on the news and they're talking about the Beverly Hills police department believes that this is a case of road rage. And I'm sitting here and I started laughing. I'm like road rage. I'm like with who at 1230 in the morning with who? I know, you know, and that is what sucked me in right then and there because it was like, wait a minute, okay, you are going to claim this was road rage? That's just, that's the dumbest goddamn thing I've ever heard, right? You know, and and I mean, it's like, and I I just let me put it like this: with the Beverly Hills Police Department dealing with them, I will just say this: I did not know that the Beverly Hills that Beverly Hills cop with Eddie Murphy. I thought it was a movie. Turns out it was actually a documentary.
0: What? what? Uh, the Beverly Hills like,
1: Cop. It was. Yeah. It was a complete. It was a complete comedy about the Beverly Hills Police Department.
0: Right. That's why I
1: say I think it was more of a documentary than anything else.
0: I'm gonna have to go watch it again. <laughs> it's been. <laughs> it's been forever, and now I'm over here just stumped when you said that. I was like, what? Like, you know, what? Were they as difficult as the Amityville police with you?
1: Um, they were about the same. Both of them, both of them were just nightmares to deal with. See Isn't
0: that kind of crazy on how these, these police, you know, and, and all, and all this stuff, they kind of like try to like keep away good evidence or the hard evidence or they, you know, don't tell the whole story and stuff. Is that what you're finding? Well, Amityville,
1: Amityville and Beverly Hills were the, the, the two cases were actually, I felt like they had a common thread between the two of them. Okay. Yeah. You know, both Amityville and Beverly Hills very well-to-do upscale communities, right. okay? You know, and you have a violent murder that happens there, okay? Mm-hmm. In the case of Amityville, it's the DeFeo's and Beverly Hills, it's Ronnie Chasen, okay? And the police departments are under a tremendous amount of pressure because these are high-profile cases to bring resolution to solve it, Right. okay? And, you know, I felt like in both cases, they did whatever they had to do to solve it. Now, obviously, obviously, Ronnie DeFeo was guilty. Mm-hmm. OK, but at the same time, the way that the, the 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 misconduct that took place on the on the part of the police department and on the part of the judge and the whole court system later on, you know, was just Horrific. I mean, everybody is entitled in this country to a fair trial, okay? Right. And and they knew that DeFeo had done this, but they just they just beat him up and they just railroaded him, you know, and he did not get a fair process, you know, and a fair opportunity to, to mount a good defense. I, I do firmly believe that, you know. Yeah. And in the case of Beverly Hills, you know, they're tremendous who killed this very prominent, high-powered Hollywood publicist. You know, they're under great pressure to get this solved, okay? They, they get a tip, okay, that says that this guy did it, okay, which turns out that the tipster, his evidence is not even circumstantial at best, Okay. Right. And they go to question this guy and this guy who is a, uh, is a three strikes felon. He's got two strikes against him already. And I don't know if you're familiar with the three strikes law in California. No. Okay. But if you get busted two times in a felony situation and you get paroled and you get out and you get busted again on the third time that you get busted, you're going away for life period. You're oh, done. Wow. Okay. Okay. Three strikes and you're out. Now, Harold, who was a two-time felon, he has a gun on him. When the Beverly Hills Police Department walks into the lobby of this seedy hotel where he was living, okay, they, they walk in, they say, we have a few questions for you. He knew at that moment, he knew okay, that they were going to find that gun on him. Mm-hmm. And when they found that gun on him, that was going to be the trigger for the three strikes and you're out. He was going back to prison for the rest of his life. Okay, when I asked the detectives at Beverly Hills, if they if they had told him why they were there, okay, Mm -hmm. they told me that he did not know that they only got as far as telling him that they were the Beverly Hills Police Department, that they had some questions for him. He didn't even know that they were there to ask him about Ronnie Chasen. Okay. yeah. So he puts the gun to his head. He commits suicide right there in front of them. Wow. Okay, and. And so, you know, as soon as that happened, I remember I said to Diana, I said to my producing partner, I said, well, he did it. And she said, oh, you think that you think that Harold Smith did? And I said, no, I don't think he did it. I said, I only say that because that's what they're that's how they're going to wrap this up. And sure as hell, not even a week later, they're having a press conference to announce that Harold Smith is the lone shooter. Case closed. OK, so Beverly Hills can now rest, you know, rest well, knowing that there's not a psychopathic maniac on the loose. Right. that's killing random women at, at stop, you know, at stoplights at intersections, yeah. you know, and but but I mean, when you dive into the whole story and you begin to look at it, none of this makes any sense. And, you know, this guy that supposedly killed her, he was he was a thief. Okay. That's all he was. That's all he had ever been his whole life. He was so he a wasn't a murderer. No, no. no. You know, <clears throat> he, the worst thing that he did that got him into prison was he beat up a woman during the commission of a robbery. He beat this woman up. He broke her jaw. Okay. While he was taking her purse. Now, that is the closest thing that, that you can find in his, in his rap sheet to violence. And was it violent? Yes. I'm not going to discount that. But let's look at what it was connected to. Would he have hurt this woman if she would have just given him the purse instead of putting up a fight? Right. Absolutely not. He, he wanted the purse. He was going to get the purse, okay, and he got it. And she got hurt, and that's unfortunate. But he was not the kind of guy, I don't believe that he was the kind of guy that was like looking, you know, to murder somebody. And the other thing that didn't make any sense is he walks up to her car, he sees the purse sitting on the front seat of the car. You know, the first thing I would have done if I would have had the gun on me is I would have used the butt of the gun, I would have run up, busted the window out of the car, reached in and grabbed the purse. Ronnie Chasen would have had no idea... We literally had no idea what was happening in that split second that her window shatters and this guy grabs her purse, right? You know, why kill her? Okay. Why would you kill her? You know, and that tells me that, you know, that there's a lot more to the story than, than, you know, what has been presented. And there was certainly, she was certainly worth a lot more money than what the public is aware of and what was reported in the media okay yeah and and so you know let's face it when you're when you're when you're extremely wealthy sometimes people have a a, a motive and have a reason to want to you know off you
0: right well i guess we're going to find that out whenever you uh, whenever you release it yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> what, if they, if they're going to off me
0: <laughs> no 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 <laughs> no i'm saying we're going to find out what what really went down with Ronnie Chasen in your film?
1: I certainly hope so.
0: Yes. Well, I'm all excited. But you know what? I'm kind of curious now. If there was a movie I made about you, who would? What would the title be? Have you ever thought about <sighs> that? Because you know, I hey, really... now now that you're famous, and you know, and everything, and you're... I'm not,
1: I'm not, I am not, I am so far from being famous. It's <sighs> not even funny. That's, and well, that's not even something. That's not even something something that, that
0: you're even that, interested in being.
1: No, no, it's really not. You know, it's the the one thing that it is, it's kind of it's unnerving, frankly, because I I had I was in a grocery store one time and it was we had debuted I think it was Titanic, like not too long before this. And I went to the grocery store and I'm just getting some dog food, this and that and whatever, and and a guy come up to me and he said He said to me, he goes, Are you on television? And that was like the most unnerving thing in the world was like, you know, because I. That's kind of creepy. You just kind of go through life and you, you know, I kind of exist. I mean, directors generally, directors and writers are not famous, you know. Generally speaking, you you have to think about it this
0: way. For me, you're famous. I'm out here in, you know, (laughs) in my little town and I'm like, Oh my God, you're in Hollywood. You're famous. So, you know, anyway, I was having fun with it, but no, I get it. I mean, so what did he do when he came up to you? He just said, so are you in television? How did you respond?
1: Well, I, whatever I said, he was just like, I, he goes, I was just thinking you look like the guy that was on the Titanic documentary, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's me. You know, and he's like, Oh, how cool. You know? And and we chatted for a minute and I made my way out of the store and that was, you know, that was the end of that, you know, but it, but in the couple, there's been a couple of instances like that. And it's just kind of like, eh, I just, I kind of like, you know, you kind of like going to the grocery store and living in a certain privacy or anonymity, you know, or, yeah. or uh, you know, obscurity. And, and, you know, and that's just kind of where that's just kind of where I'm at. That, that at. whole, I don't know, that whole fame thing just does not really interest me all that you. Much.
0: So therefore, you wouldn't want a film made by you. So therefore, there won't be a title or a particular actor you would want to play you.
1: No, 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 I don't even. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't. Even, you can't even can't think even, that
0: in that direction. I can't
1: even think of that. It's but like, see, I, that's I, what that's,
0: I. Well, that's what I love and appreciate about I you. I would because, just hope.
1: I would just hope that they would make it. I would just hope that they would make it as a comedy.
0: Oh, <laughs> probably, oh well, that would be great. Why would you think comedy? Because it'd be funny, right? It'd be just interesting. Oh, uh, because it'd be
1: funny. Because I mean, my, my. I think my life has been way funnier than what. You yeah. know, I, I, you know, it's funny because horror is like horror and murder and homicide and mayhem is it's sort so of serious. like, you know, what, what interests me and what captivates my imagination. But really there's nothing like a, like a good comedy. I mean, I've always envied the comedy writers. I've always wanted to be a great comedy writer, but I'm more of a, I'm well, you know, murder. Right. It's, yeah. it's where I'm at.
0: <laughs> well, you know that, is, so I'm just kind of wondering, how did you get from? You said you uh, earlier in the interview you were talking about you were uh, born and raised in Ohio. So you, then you get to Cali. How did how did that happen? Like was that thirty thirty bucks in a in a greyhound and you end up there, or how did, how no,
1: did... no, my. So I grew up in I grew up in Ohio, and um, you know, born and raised. And my parents had a uh, family business. My dad was a I guess you would call him kind of like an engineer, and a um, he, he could build, he could basically build and design anything. He was like an right. electrical hydraulic engineer kind of thing, and he worked steel and iron his whole life. And they had built this this family business, and there had been some strife in the family. It was a partnership between my father and my grandfather. And there had been a big falling out, and my parents just decided to sell the business, and we moved to California because that's just where they wanted to go. It was where my mom wanted to be, oh. and so I had just started my my senior year of high school. I was two months into my senior year of high school, and we moved to California. And I finished. I went from living in a place where the population, where my graduating class was like. 32 or something like that to a graduating class of like 540. Wow. So it was just complete and utter culture shock, you know, and, um, and, you know, I would, I had been in California for a couple of years and, you know, sort of kind of made my own way and was working and was making some decent money. And, you know, I went back, I was very homesick and I went home on probably the first, like, adult vacation that I'd ever had. This was, like, 95, so I was barely 20 years old. And I went back to visit friends and relatives in Ohio. I I actually drove cross-country by myself on a road trip, you know, and had a blast doing it. And I got back to Ohio and spent, like, a week there and looked around, and it was just like, wow, this place has not changed. I've been gone for three years and nothing has changed. And it's right. and it's the same people doing the same things and the same people dating the same people that they were dating or marrying or having kids or doing all this stuff and living in this little small community. And I mean, and I'm not knocking where I came from by any means because, you know, we had a great school. We had a great education. You know, it was a peaceful upbringing. You know, I mean, it was, it was a good way of life. Yeah. But... I realized after being there for a week that you know California there's there's no place like California the opportunity you can do anything and be anything you want in California right you know, and I just remember I spent a week there and I was totally bored and I was ready to come home and you know this california has been home ever since and you know it's far from perfect the the politics here suck and the cost <laughs> of living sucks and and you know the, there's that's a whole nother problem yeah but
0: see you have the so. what's well, the thing is you have the best weather though you know that they say you'll have well, the best weather
1: well, that's good, because I'm, it's a good thing that we have the weather we have, because if housing costs keep going up, we're all going to be homeless. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's going to be good to live outside when the weather's not. Nice.
0: Right. Well, I tell you what. Thank you so much. This has been a great, great time with you and ta- and chatting with you about all these great films that you've done. And for everyone out there, please check out the Reels channel and find him on there, and check out all of his movies. And also to go to Ryan Katzenbach Presents for the for YouTube and check out the channel there. And Ryan, thank you so much mm-hmm. for the, the 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 gifts of uh, movies that you bring. You you really well, do a great job. And,
1: and thank you for letting me ramble for the last however I don't no. know how long.
0: No, 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 no. It's been it's been my pleasure and that's what I love about you. You know, you are successful and to me you are famous and if you like to say it or not and um but, but you're very modest about that and I'd rather also, be
1: I'd rather be infamous
0: infamous yes but i tell you what thank you and but like i said i hold dear our friendship you're a great friend and also a filmmaker so thank you for your time today it's been absolutely wonderful and um for all y'all out there catch me on iheart apple spotify podcast go to my instagram the real patrick tremont facebook real and raw with patrick tremont thank y'all for listening today and ryan thank you once again it's been my pleasure to have you're
1: quite welcome and actually if, if of the two of us you sound like more of the professional than me
0: oh no 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 sir i've seen you on all the uh the tv interviews and everything and you kill it every single time so but thank you so much for the for the compliments. all right thank you ryan Talk to you
2: soon.
0: it's been real and raw with patrick tremont